Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, November the 20th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are, uh, we've had a good week. It's been a kind of a busy week because our son Pelham and his wife Anna were in town, and we didn't actually expect to see them very much. And then as it turned out, due to things, events that happened, that we ended up seeing quite a bit of them, um, which was great. And we're going out there next week um, and spend a week with them in Seattle. Looking forward to that very much. Uh, then we come back for a week, and then we go to the beach for a week. So we've got kind of a busy next few weeks and looking forward to all of it and uh, – just praying that the Lord will give us safe travel in all that we do and that he would be with us and, and travel with us and bless us in, in this time that we get to spend away. It's been kind of a busy year for us for travel, um, and it's been good. Um, it's been cold here this week. I don't know about where you live, but it's been cold here. Um, big change in the weather for this week. It was it was good, though. I enjoyed it. Um, we, um, we haven't been able to get out as much as we normally do as far as hiking and things like that are concerned because because they were here this week and, and like i said there were just other things more important than getting out this week so anyway it's been good um nothing particularly exciting other than that going on um just you know kind of hanging out <clears throat> going to the gym doing the things that i love to do so that that there you go so here we are we're at the end of the year it may not feel like it to you because it's november <laughs> But if you're Anglican, what you realize is is that the, the church calendar actually begins next week. The first Sunday of Advent is actually the first Sunday of the church year. So the church year is off from um, from the, the normal calendar year, and, and I like it that way. It causes me to think differently about things if, because everything in my life shouldn't be based on um, you know, the public calendar. And so we, in the church year, we're celebrating things at different times, and we're looking at things in different ways at different times. And so this is a period, this this next season is a pre- period of preparation, and I'm going to focus largely on that aspect of what Advent is for, what its purpose is. It's to prepare us for Christmas, the incarnation, in the same way that Lent is to prepare us for um, for Easter. So I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about preparation, um, and, I, and I'm feeling it probably in a little different way this year than I have in the past. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's Will's death is, has impacted me in certain kinds of ways, uh, and one of those is it's given me a different focus and a different thought about the future and the way to approach the future. Um, because I, what I've learned is is that that don't count on anything, don't hold too tightly to anything, um, but celebrate the Lord in all things, and and, and that kind of leads into today because it's it's Sunday today is Christ the King Sunday, and so we celebrate Jesus as King right before we begin preparing for Him to come again. So we we look today we're we're beginning the lesson with a lesson from Jeremiah twenty three verses one to six. And, and what he's saying, uh, Jeremiah is saying here, he's promising the Lord will return and the Lord will himself shepherd the sheep. And then we see that when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. 
So today, what do we have? We've got, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Now, we see this all through the uh, ministry of Jesus as well. We see the cynicism of the leadership towards the people. They said, well, you know, we can't—they're they're just uneducated people. They're nothing. They're meaningless. They're, you know, they, they can't even grasp basic things. Well, whose fault is that? You know, right? It's the leader's fault that they're not grasping those basic things. And it's true. It can be true even in the church today. I've got friends who um, go to a church that the pastor there won't give them communion because he doesn't think that they're prepared for it. Well, that's your job. <laughs> it's absolutely your job, but it's a cynical uh, attitude towards the people in the pews. And it's just, that's the kind of thing that absolutely drives me crazy. Um, I doesn't mean that I'm above it, because I've certainly been cynical about people who have been under my care, um, and, and, and that was wrong. It's just straight up, that was wrong. I've been cynical about a lot of things and a lot of people, and I guarantee you there have been a lot of people who have been cynical about John, too. So, um, you know, I, I'm aware of that. But the, but the issue is, is that as shepherds, those who are over a flock, there, there's a beautiful um, symbiotic relationship between that shepherd and the flock, and the, the, it, you see that in Psalm 23, you know, the most beautiful thing in the world. And, and, and to me, it always comes down to, with me, he restores my soul. I just That is, to me, the most overwhelming image that I think I, I could ever bump into in my life is that he restores my soul. And he does, again and again and again. My soul constantly needs restoration. And, and, and I long for the day when, it, when that work is complete. When I am a new creation, I long for that day because I recognize the cracks in my soul. I recognize the the uh, issues that keep me from being complete in Him, and, and that healing, that utter and complete healing, that that will come when we are finally with Him, is something to be longed for. But here Jeremiah is is saying, "You shepherds, you're cynical and you're failing to lead the people. You're actually." Um, devouring them. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. And, and it's through cynicism, it's through greed, it's through avarice, it's through the idea of, of, of you're better than, you know, this, this superiority complex that can come in among clergy and that, can, that, that, that will frequently come in. In that way, that, that, that it's a set-apart group as leaders, and they consider themselves special in the kingdom of God. And that was clearly true in the leadership at the time of Jesus with the priests as well as the uh, Pharisees, who were significant leaders, and the, and the Sadducees as well. And so all the groups of leaders at the time of Jesus were, were people who had— um, who had set themselves above others. And, and Jesus says that again and again in, in parables when he talks about when you're invited to a banquet, take the lowest seats, and woe to those who seek the highest places. You know, and then he tells the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. The Pharisee stands apart, stands up, speaks out, and the tax collector beats his breasts and asks for forgiveness on him as a sinner the, while the Pharisee stands and, and brags about the things that he does. And, and so there's, a, there's always that issue, and what happens is through neglect, people leave. I mean, I've seen that happen in churches. I've seen people who were hurting and, and who had been sick, and nobody visited them, and, and nobody cared for them, and they just wandered away from the church over time. They felt like they didn't matter, um, and so they just sort of disappeared. 
And and so one of the great joys of my life was serving at the congregation in Pauly's Island. And and I saw one of the first things that I did was that, that I went to a group of people that I knew well and said, do you know people who've, who are still members of this church, but who have kind of wandered away because um, nobody had paid any attention to them and they felt like they didn't matter in the church? And so they began to say, yeah, I do. And they named these people. And then I'd say, you know, hey, will, will you go see these people with me? Can you and I take them to lunch or whatever and, and restore them to the fellowship of the church? And it was the greatest thing in the world to look up on a Sunday morning and see those people sitting in the pews worshiping and becoming more and more part of the church and being lifted up. And, and that's the role, I believe, of leadership in the church is to, to care for people and to, to make sure that people don't get lost in the same way that Jesus did when he talks about, you know, having, 90, having 100 sheep, one of them gets lost, leave the 99, go find the one. I believe that's a huge issue in the church. And if we could spend time doing that, we would dedicate resources to going out and finding people who were estranged from the church and, and go and bring them back as best we can. Now, it's not going to work in every circumstance, certainly, but, but I think it would be a worthy mission to go, to go find those people and bring them back into the church. Um, but, they're, but they've been burned and they've been hurt, and, and then we, it takes time because you have to listen to their pain, and the pain is real. Now, sometimes it, it, it's not imagined, but, but sometimes it's misunderstood. Things are misunderstood, and, and, well, I left because I misunderstood something, and, and I learned then that I was wrong about what I misunderstood, but, but I didn't know how to come back. You know, and I've seen that happen. So it, it can go both ways. But here it's clear this is all on the leadership. He said, Behold, I will attend to you, the leaders, for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then, after I attend to you for your evil deeds, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I'll bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I'll set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor neither be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And as Christians, we know the the full reality of that, that he is our righteousness, he was perfectly righteous, died on the cross, took our sins, and exchanged that for his righteousness for us. So we put on the robe of righteousness that rightly belongs to Jesus because of his great love for us. The transfer of sin to him, righteousness to us, occurs. And it occurs every time we pray and we cast our sins and burdens upon him and receive in return that robe of righteousness that comes with forgiveness. And so we are given those white robes. Whenever we repent of our sins, whenever we come before him and we confess and we truly turn away from those sins, then he gives us the robe of his righteousness and we can then be reconciled completely to God. In the same way, you see that in Zechariah's prophecy when you see the high priest Joshua brought before the throne and the accuser stands there and says, look at him, he's got filthy robes on. Look at him. He's not fit to be a leader of your people. And God says, get him a robe. Get him a new robe. Clean him up. It's fine. It's God's work. It's that very same image. It's the same image of the prodigal son, right? He comes back. He's filthy, dirty, starving, comes back, 
wants to be reconciled with the Father, but he doesn't even imagine that he can be fully reconciled. He says, no. He said, I want to come back here because I know that you treat your servants well, so treat me like one of your servants. That's his plan, but he doesn't get to say it to the Father. In the story Jesus tells, he he rehearses that. He's prepared to come and speak these words, and, and he comes and he speaks his confession that I've sinned against you, but the Father cuts him off before he can propose the future. It's not up to him to propose the future. It's up to the one who has been sinned against to determine the nature of the future. And so that's exactly what happens. The, the uh, father says, go get a new robe. Get him new sandals. Get him a new ring. He is my son. And that's what that ring would signify. It would be the signet ring of the father that identifies him immediately as a son of this man. All these things identify him as a beloved son. That's what it looks like when we come back to the Lord. He is our righteousness. He's not looking for perfection from us. We're not capable. We have a sin nature. He, however, overcame that sin nature in his flesh and then transfers his righteousness to us in order that we might be reconciled to God but also be reconciled one to another by also giving us the Holy Spirit. So that, that's what Jeremiah sees. He sees Jesus. That's exactly what he sees. Now we're waiting for him to sit on that throne and rule and reign. And that begins with putting him on the throne in our own lives. But that means at some level I have to be dethroned. I mean, that was the, one of the first things he ever did to me. I, I was very happy. I was very successful. I, I was doing great. You know, everything was going good. Everything was moving in a particular direction. But he had called me back when I was 19 years old. At that point, I was 32 years old. So it's not quite the same, John. No, I called you when I was 19. When you were 19, you ran away. And now you've come back like the prodigal son. And and I have a different plan for your life than the plan you have for your life. I had to be dethroned. And it hurt. I wasn't ready to be dethroned. I was ready to succeed at an even greater level because, well, now Jesus is with me. And so I, I believed the lie that he would just magnify whatever I was doing. No, he said, no, I want you to stop what you're doing. That's not where I wanted you to be. I want you to come over here and do something else. Well, it took me about five years <laughs> to allow him to become the king of my life so that he could take over and put me in the places he wanted me to be. But it's important that, that we lay down that kingship of our own lives. And it's never easy. In the gospel lesson today. It's one of the most amazing things I think you can ever come across in the gospels is this one. They came to the place that's called the skull. So this is the crucifixion. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus, the cross in the middle. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's not talking about the thieves on the cross. He's talking about the people who are crucifying him. That's what it looks like to have Jesus on the throne of your life. Because I'd be cursing them. But he knows this is the Father's will. And so instead of cursing them, he recognizes what's going on here and he prays for their forgiveness because he knows they're under a demonic oppression that's causing them to reject him and not see him for who he is, not recognize their own Messiah. 
They were looking for a specific kind of Messiah, a Messiah who would do certain kinds of things. Jesus didn't seem ready or willing to do those things, and therefore he must not be Messiah. Therefore, he's a threat because if he stirs something up here, the Romans are likely to take our uh, temple and everything else away from us. So we got to get rid of him. That and, well, the jealousy of the people are going after him now. Uh, So they, they reject him as Messiah because they're the king of their own lives. They know what they want. They're not prepared to see the new thing God is doing and receive him as their king and their shepherd. And so what does he do? Jesus prays for forgiveness for them. Man, I'll tell you what. There's been plenty of times in, in my ministry career when, when I should have done exactly that, and I didn't. And that's just the honest truth. I, I, that's, that's one of the great regrets of my career is, is when I was being persecuted, when, I was, when people were coming after me, I wish that I had prayed for them rather than fighting them. I really do. So here you see that with Jesus. And then they cast lots to divide his garments. That's the spoils of war, essentially. He ain't going to need them, so they're going to take them. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one, if he is who he says he is, then he ought to be able to come down from that cross. And the reality is, he could have. He absolutely could have. But for love of you and for love of me and for love of them, he did not. He persevered to the end because he knew it was the will of the Father. No matter what it meant for him, he was willing to lay down his life for love of the people who were actually crucifying him, for the love of people like me, for the love of people like you. Love is what held him there on that cross. And if you have any doubt of that, Go back and read his prayer for the ones who were crucifying him again. So the ruler scoffed at him. The people stood by watching. I mean, you can just see this mass of people standing there in disbelief at what they're seeing with the reality also that they, they um, participated in the trial before Pilate by shouting, crucify him. The same people who less than a week before had said, Hosanna, to the son of David, and acclaimed him as their king and, and asked him to save them. That's what Hosanna means, Lord, save us. So they're, they're crying that, Hosanna, to the son of David, as he comes into town, and then they say, crucify him. And now here, they're standing open-mouthed, aghast at what they've done and what their rulers have done, and the rulers are still scoffing at him and saying these things. He saved others, let him save himself. They're acknowledging the work that he did. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And and then almost parenthetically, Luke says, oh yeah, by the way, there was also an inscription over him that says, this is the king of the Jews. And it was true. And, And instead of saving himself, He is indeed, at that moment, saving us. He's making salvation a possibility for even those who scoff at him, even those who curse him while he's there on the cross. So all these truths are there, and nobody can see that truth. If he's this, if he's that, if he can do this, 
He can. He has the ability to do it, and it's one of the questions that I think we need to be able to be willing to ask more often in our world today. I'm able to do this. We're able to do this. Should we do this? Is it, is it the right thing to do? Just because we have the ability to do something, should we do it? And here's the perfect example. If Jesus does that, if he saves himself, then we're all eternally damned. <clears throat> we need a Savior. We need a King. And they've rejected him as King, and they've rejected him as Savior. So we see the people's reaction is to stand by watching. The rulers scoff at him, and the soldiers mock him. One of the criminals who was hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. If you are who you say you are, go ahead and do something. It sounds so similar. All this stuff sounds so similar to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, right? If you are who you say you are, if you're the Son of God, that's what Satan says every time, if you're the Son of God, then do this. Do something useful is the first one, right? Make some food. Turn those stones into bread. That's what's being offered. If you're the chosen one, if you're the Christ of God, if you're the Son of God, then do this. It's the same temptations that are being offered by Satan, now being offered by people here at the cross. In the, in the point of Jesus' greatest vulnerability, while he's being crucified, while he's dying, in the same way Satan comes after a 40-day fast. Now here we get the same thing. Remember in one of the Gospels it says that, that he waited until a more opportune time. Well, this is the more opportune time. Not when he was popular, but now. The other criminal rebuked that criminal, saying, Don't you fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, We deserve to be here. We're being punished for crimes we actually committed, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He sees the innocence of Jesus. He's the only man there other than Jesus who's kept his head. He's the only one there who's seeing anything clearly. This man is an innocent man. Don't you see that? And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That, that spiritual eyes at a level that, that, that almost is never attained, right? To be able to see through the worst possible moment in time the truth of things, that this is good. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You, you know, you, he, he's not looking at the other guy on the cross and saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Nobody's thinking anybody's coming into a kingdom here except this guy. And he sees that Jesus, the man dying on the cross next to him, is coming into a kingdom. That takes faith. That takes eyes of the Spirit. God did something incredible. That man saw that. And he's the first man that we know is with Jesus in paradise because Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's an absolutely amazing thing. We look at the crucifixion and we see the failure of rulers and people and soldiers, even other men being crucified to recognize Jesus, and yet one sees through the noise to the signal. He's able to put away everything else in the same way that Jesus' prayer says he's able to put away all the noise and get clearly to the signal. 
this guy is able to do the same thing. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing. A criminal who is deserving of death on a Roman cross has a spiritual insight that exceeds every other person there except Jesus. And the same was always true in Jesus' life. The same was true at his birth. No one came, even though it would have seemed 100% likely that with the census requiring everyone to go to their land of the ancestors, that the Messiah was likely to be in Bethlehem, the city of David, from whose line Messiah was to come. The story of the birth of John the Baptist, the story of Mary. Nope, no one showed except the shepherds who were given a heads up from the angels and later the Magi from Babylon. And when the Magi come, what do they do? They come into to Jerusalem. They've seen the sign. They've seen the, the uh, star. And they come and say, hey, your king's been born. We've seen his sign. We've seen his star. Where's he going to be born? We don't know. And the Jewish leaders looked at these people and said, huh, um, Bethlehem is the answer. It's six miles, six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Who accompanied the Magi to Bethlehem? No one. No one. These men have traveled 1,000 miles or more. They show up. They proclaim that the king has been born, and the sign has been given. We're going to go see him. Anybody want to come with us? He's your king. That's okay. Nobody cared. Nobody believed him. The only person who actually cared was Herod. He found out about this. The king of the Jews was born, and he said, all right, kill all the uh, male children under two just to make sure. It's absolutely unbelievable. If you're one of those people who's been overlooked most of your life, well, you're in good company. So was Jesus, always. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's from Galilee. Really? Galilee? He's from Nazareth? Nothing good can come from Nazareth. It was so difficult. And, and here at the cross, though, there's one guy, another man on a cross, who recognizes truly that Jesus is being glorified, just like he said he was going to be. Right now, has, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says to the disciples when they say, hey, these Greek people want to see you. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Not a single one of them, even though he had said it, believed that that process was going to begin at a cross. and Because you, you see, the cross is the beginning. It's the beginning of the inauguration of the, king of, of the kingdom of God on earth but because it makes possible the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, God's kingdom truly being established in his people who are then called to establish it across this earth and to go and proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God and, and the return of of the king to make claim to the entire earth as his kingdom. That's our job. We're to be fruitful and multiply in the same way Jeremiah says they'll be enabled to be fruitful and multiply after I gather them in. We've been called to be fruitful and multiply. We've been called to go and proclaim the message of the kingdom of God and the coming of the kingdom of God and the coming again of Jesus Christ in judgment on the world. But we have the, the same possibility as the man on the cross because we didn't know it, but we were. We are guilty. We, we, we too were under a sentence of death. We had already, Paul says, died. But he gave us spiritual eyes and gave us his Holy Spirit that we might recognize his son and that his son truly had, the one crucified on that cross, had come into the kingdom. 
That's who we are. We are that man. And we know that what's required there is God to work in us first so that we can even see these things and recognize these truths. And, and so we evangelize, not counting on our cleverness or our eloquence for the outcome, but the Holy Spirit, because we know God loves the world. Jesus told us that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life. And, and so we count on that spirit. We count on that truth. We count on the authority, Jesus says, was given to him. All authority in heaven and earth was given to him. And, and then he says, go and make disciples. After he says authority is given to me, he, he turns around and says, I give that authority to you in the same way that he did when he sent the 12 out to go and heal and proclaim the coming of the kingdom. He does it again now and says, go into all the world and do this stuff. Paul, remember, is born out of time and missed it the first time around, but got a second chance. He says, being strengthened with all power, this is Colossians 1, 11 to 20, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, important step right there, giving thanks to the Father in all things, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You've been qualified by God to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, in the same way that the prodigal son was qualified by the Father to become a son in the house again after he had gone astray. We have been qualified in the same way to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You aren't qualified on your own. He did it through the forgiveness of sins, through the cross. And then Paul, so Paul tells us who we are, right? He tells us who we are. We are those people who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. We are those who are redeemed through the forgiveness of sins. We are those who have been qualified by him to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And he goes from there to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, which is exactly what John says in, in the first chapter, the first 18 verses of his gospel. It's how he begins his gospel. All things were created through him. Nothing was created that wasn't through him. <laughs> by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So everything Everything that's ever been created was created through him, by him, visible and invisible. Important, important words right there, visible and invisible. We tend to go only with the stuff we can see, feel, touch, taste, smell, all that stuff, the things that are apparent to our senses. Paul says, no, 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 there's more to it than that. There's way more to it than that, and we need to be aware of that. We need to always be aware of the spiritual realm. Paul never lost sight of the fact that the spiritual realm was where we fight much of our battles. In fact, at one point, he says, he says we are given the opportunity to proclaim that truth of the gospel to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. They don't even know it. They need to hear that gospel, too, so that they'll release their grip, recognize who they are. He says, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And when Paul says thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, he's not just talking about earthly ones. That is not what he means. He means all of them. The heavenly thrones, the earthly thrones, the visible thrones, the invisible thrones, all of them, Paul says. All things, 
all things were created through him and for him. And ultimately, he'll reign over all those things. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen to that, baby. I'm telling you, if I've learned anything in the last year, it's that all things hang together in Christ. Without him, I'm a wreck. Without him, I have no hope. Without him, I'm a devastated hulk of a man. And there's nothing there. But because of him, because of his resurrection from the dead, I have hope, and I have strength, I have patience, I have endurance, and I have joy. Just exactly like Paul said. Because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus. All things hold together in him. Everything is held together by him. And thanks be to God for that. And he is the head of the body of the church. If there's a church, he is the head of it. Anything he's not the head of is not a church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He made peace between heaven and earth between man and God, a peace like had never been known since Genesis 3. There had never been a peace like the peace that we're able to have right now in Christ, because I know my sins are forgiven. I know my sins are gone. They no longer stand between me and God. And so Jesus can come at the, as the head of the church. He can come in, in the vision that John gets in the Revelation in the, in the first three chapters, and, and what you see is Jesus knows that he's the king. And he knows that he is the head of the church. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I was there in the beginning. I'll be there in the end. I will always be, and I have always been. And I have some things to say to the church, he says. I have some things to say to the church. There's some things you're doing well. There's some things you're not doing well. And I'm the Lord of the church, and I call you to repent of those things you're not doing well. He says the same to the church today. Are we willing to hear it? Are we as Christians, individual Christians, willing to hear the Spirit speak those words to us? You know, Well done, but there's some serious stuff you're doing wrong. I need to call you back to repentance. I need to call you back to me. Are are you more trusting in your methodologies or in the Holy Spirit? Do you trust in those things or do you trust in me? You don't have to have the right music. You don't have to have all this stuff. No, what you have to do is have me, and you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you have those things, then, then everything's good. But we get sidetracked. We, we get off on our own thing. And we forget. We forget to keep the main thing the main thing. That's going to be what I'm going to talk about all the time for the next four weeks during Advent. But today is a day to celebrate Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And to say, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and establish your kingdom in heaven and on earth.